I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America, chartered by Congress, to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And in this episode, we discuss presidential war powers and Congress's role in national security. Article 1 of the Constitution gives Congress the power to declare war, raise armies, and regulate forces. But Article 2 names the president commander-in-chief and vests him with the executive power. Who should be in charge of national security? And what does the Constitution say about the relationship between Congress and the president in wartime? Joining us to discuss these important questions are two of America's leading scholars of national security law and executive power. Cypher Cash is the James Monroe Distinguished Professor of Law at the University of Virginia. He's author of Imperial from the Beginning, the Constitution of the Original Executive. He's written extensively on the domestic war powers of Congress, the powers of presidency, and the Constitution. And Deborah Pearlstein is Associate Professor at the Benjamin N. Cardozo School of Law. Her work on national security and the separation of powers has widely appeared, and she is a a uh, very welcome uh, repeat guest at the National Constitution Center's uh, debates about national security and the presidency. Sai, Deborah, thank you so much for joining. Great to be here. Let's jump right in with the question of the Constitution and North Korea. Sai, how do you interpret President Trump's recent comments about his plan in North Korea, where he said North Korea best not make any more threats to the United States or else they will be met with fire and fury like the world has never seen. Would President Trump be able to strike North Korea without action by Congress under the Constitution? And what constitutional provisions govern this kind of military action? Well, you've mentioned all the relevant constitutional provisions. And the answer to your question really turns on uh, your conception of the Constitution. I think if you've got an originalist approach to the Constitution, um, that, that approach suggests that uh, Congress gets to decide whether to declare war, which is a, basically a synonym to, uh, for whether to, whether to wage it. And if you look at our history, our early history, Congress repeatedly decided to declare war or authorize the use of military force, right? We saw that in World War I, World War II, the Mexican-American War, the Spanish-American War. Uh, the War of 1812, and various other authorizations to use force against Tripoli, Algeria, uh, Mexico, etc. And so I think the original understanding of the Constitution is Congress has a monopoly on the decision as to whether to wage war. That all changed rather abruptly with the original Korean War back in, in nine, you know, the uh, 1950s, where uh, Truman um, took the nation to war against Korea without going to Congress first. That was a conscious decision on his part. And ever since then, presidents have claimed authority to wage war without congressional authorization. Um, and that's happened across presidents, both Democrats and Republicans. And so I think if Trump, President Trump believes he can uh, wage war in Korea without going to Congress, he's going to be following in the footsteps of Truman, et cetera. If, if he believes uh, he can threaten Korea, but Congress still has to weigh in, then he's going to have to go to Congress and get a declaration of war. Thanks so much for that. Deborah, uh, do you agree or disagree? And do you think that President Trump has the power unilaterally to wage war in North Korea? I agree with, I think, almost everything or perhaps everything that Sai just uh, said. Uh, certainly under an original interpretation of the Constitution, and I think still the best interpretation, not just because it's consistent with the text and the original purpose, but also because it's consistent with constitutional purposes and the separation of powers more broadly, um, I think still the best interpretation is that the president uh, doesn't have the power to use force uh, unilaterally unless there's a circumstance of, of self-defense, and we can talk about what that might be. Um, uh, but at the same time, I recognize, as I think anyone must, that there has been this presidential practice since Truman, um, through presidents, Republican and Democrat alike, under different circumstances, um, to use force without congressional authorization. And the 
currently prevailing executive branch view is a view that's contained in opinions of the Office of Legal Counsel and the Department of Justice. Um, and I think the most recent uh, sort of prevailing statement or the most recent statement of the prevailing view of that office um, is, is from the Obama administration in 2011 when that office concluded that President Obama had the authority to use a limited amount of force in Libya uh, uh, again in 2011. And there the OLC summarized what it understood as the sort of post-Truman executive branch understanding of when it was okay to, for presidents to use force without congressional authorization. And, and to be clear, no president has claimed that this authority is entirely unlimited. Uh, rather, it's, according to the OLC, uh, limited by two pretty broad sets of categories. One is um, the president has to be acting in the national interest or in, in the services of a substantial national interest. Now, that standard, just to say it, is pretty evidently broad, and the OLC has interpreted it in pretty evidently broad ways in terms of what can uh, count as in the national interest. In the case of Libya, uh, OLC said the U.S. had an important national interest in uh, both promoting regional stability in that important region of the world and also in um, protecting and promoting the legitimacy of the U.N. charter system, the U.N. system and the U.N. charter. Uh, and in the case of Libya, the U.N. Security Council had voted to authorize the use of force in Libya. So for both of those national interests, both of those were substantial national interests, and they counted as, as reasons why the president could use force without congressional authorization. But the, the second part of the test is in some respects more important um, or arguably more limiting or potentially more limiting at least. And that is uh, that the amount of force that the president planned to use or contemplated using had to be something less than war in the constitutional sense. What's war in quotes in the constitutional sense? Well, Congress is given, as you mentioned at the outset, the power to declare war and although the OLC hasn't made clear exactly what defines war in the meaning of that clause, it clearly includes something more than, for example, singular ground strikes or even a, excuse me, singular air strikes or even a sustained air campaign. Uh, really, what OLC has said, war means is something that looks like Vietnam, something that involves substantial commitments of U.S. ground troops over a sustained period of time uh, with substantial risks to American forces and, and so forth. Um, because the amount of force President Obama contemplated in Libya and other presidents used in, for example, Haiti and Somalia and elsewhere are less than war in that constitutional sense, the president should be understood uh, as having the power, uh, as as having the power within his own inherent Article II authority to use force. Um, now, I've been talking for a long time. I wanted to be sure to get that OLC standard on the table. I think there's a really important question about even within the broad terms that OLC has set whether a use of force in North Korea under these circumstances, um, which are pretty fraught, uh, would even satisfy that OLC standard. That is, is there something we could do in North Korea under present circumstances that would be less than war? I think it's not entirely clear. So maybe I'll stop there for now, and, and we can pick up the North Korea case in a minute. Great. That's very helpful, and I hear you both Agreeing on quite a bit, uh, first, that presidents can use military force if specifically authorized by Congress. Second, that presidents have independent authority to use military force in response to attacks on the U.S. But third, that there's this gray area that the president can use power short of a full-blown war, uh, in particular uh, in a uh, defensive sense, but can't launch offensive war without congressional approval. So now let's drill down into the North Korea question. Uh, Sai, imagine that President Trump said, uh, North Korea, remove the missiles or else we will nuke you with fire and fury such as the world has never seen, and they don't remove the missiles and he uh, nukes them. Would that uh, violate the Constitution? Well, the, the Constitution doesn't specifically address this sort of ultimatum, or it's not thought to. Um, 
But I, I think it actually does. I think most people wouldn't think that it is, but I think it actually does. I think what people forget is that in the 18th century, there was something called the conditional declaration of war, which was basically a threat. If you don't do the following, we will declare war upon you. And I think the declare war clause gives that authority to Congress. Congress is the one that can make these threats, not the president. Um, but in modern times, that are, that understanding has somewhat eroded. And so people don't seem to bat an eye um, when the president makes these, makes these threats. Um, some of those people may think that Congress actually has to still declare war. But I, I don't think very many people think that it's unconstitutional for the president to make this sort of ultimatum type threat, even though, as I said, I, I believe that as an original understanding, this was a conditional declaration of war left to Congress. Thanks for that, Deborah. Same question. Would the ultimatum violate the Constitution? And, and also, I have to ask the practical question. So it violates the Constitution. What could Congress or the courts do to stop this? Right. So um, let me take that in two, in two parts. Um, would the threat itself violate the Constitution? So for the reasons that Cy just articulated, I, so I think there's there's a way uh, that I find persuasive of actually reading the Constitution, um, and then and then there's what has actually evolved, and those those reach two different conclusions. Uh, just as one reaches two different conclusions under those um, different readings, depending. Um, I want to add one caveat to that, and then respond to the what could be done. The caveat to that is that. The United States is party to a very important treaty. The treaty is called the UN Charter. Um, the United States has been a party to that treaty, as is every other country in the world. Uh, uh, well, the United States has been at least since 1945. Every other country in the world is currently party to that treaty. Um, and under our Constitution, under the supremacy clause of our Constitution, treaties are also the supreme law of the land. So we not only have an international law obligation to abide by our formal treaties, we have a constitutional obligation to abide by them. And the reason I mention that here is because the UN Charter provides, among other things, uh, that states are prohibited from not only the use of force without Security Council authorization or self-defense justification, but also the threat of the use of force. So the president is facing in circumstances of not only the use of force, but also the threat of use of force, the constitutional considerations that um, Sy mentioned, and also separate constitutional concerns under the Supremacy Clause, which incorporates our treaty obligations, because those two in the post-Truman era um, contain prohibitions against the use of force or the threat of use of force, except in certain very limited circumstances. So now, what could anybody do about it, or has anybody done about it, if um, the president either uses force or threatens to use force uh, without congressional authorization? Um, and the answer has been not a whole lot, but not nothing. So historically, there have been a variety of attempts through the courts to um, have the courts declare in various ways acts of uses of force by presidents unconstitutional or exceeding their statutory authority or something of that nature. Um, and in the Vietnam era, when these cases were brought a lot, the courts, for the most part, uh, rejected those suits on either standing grounds or uh, ripeness grounds or mootness grounds, and on rare occasion, political question grounds. Um, a few kinds of those cases have been brought recently under um, uh, challenging the president's continued use of force under a statutory authorization for the use of force passed after the attacks of 2001. Um, those suits, for the most part, um, again, setting aside questions of the extent to which that statute authorizes detention authority, for example, but just on the question, can the president bomb places? Those suits have, for the most part, been rejected by courts as well under political question grounds and similar things. So the courts, um, by and large, uh, have been extremely reluctant to take on the question, can the president do this full stop? Does the president have the authority to use force in some um, sort of general sense, and does the president have the authority to declare war, not 
to torture people or to detain people, but declare war sort of writ large. Um, the courts have, have made a practice of avoiding that. Now, that may change, but that's been the, the, the case so far. Congress, of course, uh, has all kinds of power to stop the president from using force if Congress doesn't want the president to use force. First and foremost and most easily, Congress can cut off funding to the president for doing things that Congress doesn't want it to do. And Congress did that to great effect in prohibiting President Obama from expending funds for, to transfer any of the Guantanamo Bay detainees uh, out of Guantanamo Bay uh, absent particular conditions. So Congress has all the authority it needs, and there are other ways in which Congress can act, too. The question has been much more, does Congress have the political will? Will Congress exercise its power to act to constrain the president in that way? And in that respect, um, historically, uh, Congress has been much more reluctant to act. Thanks uh, very much for that. We've uh, heard you say that the courts uh, are unlikely to intervene and, and Congress historically hasn't. But, Sai, can Congress imagine that Congress were to prohibit President Trump from initiating military action in North Korea? Uh, Professor John Yu is hold that such an attempt to control the military contrary to the president's desire infringes the commander-in-chief clause. Uh, but you have offered an opposing view. Can you tell us what that is? Yes. Um, uh, the the Commander-in-Chief Clause gives the president control of the Army and the Navy, and that's in the Constitution itself. And from that, and from English practice, John, you infers that the president can you know, start any war he wants to and order the military to do anything he wants to. Um, I think that misunderstands what a Commander-in-Chief is. The Commander-in-Chief office actually comes from England. And it merely describes an officer who controls a, a certain certain set of troops. And so in England, they had thousands of commanders-in-chief. They had the commander-in-chief of Canada, commander-in-chief of North America, commander-in-chief of India, commander-in-chief of platoons and brigades. And then you bring that sort of phrase over to I mean, and, and none of those people were independent of parliament or the king, right? They weren't, they didn't have this autonomy to do whatever they wanted to do in the way that uh, uh, some people think the commander-in-chief under the Constitution has such autonomy. Well, when you bring that office over to the United States and you make George Washington commander-in-chief under the uh, Articles of Confederation, and he too was subject to all kinds of congressional direction during the Revolutionary War. Um, he was not this autonomous officer that people think uh, the, the, the title implies today. He was subject to congressional direction left and right, and and, he, and it was the office was understood not to have power to take property, to order military tribunals, to suspend habeas corpus. So that's the office that that predated the Constitution, both domestically and uh, overseas. And and my claim is that it's that's the same office that's incorporated into the Constitution. The president has command over the troops, but he doesn't have authority pursuant to being commander chief to start wars. And he doesn't have authority to ignore congressional statutes related to the use of military force, related to the military, where Congress has subject matter authority over the military. And it turns out that Congress has sweeping authority over the military. Congress has authority to make rules for the government and regulation of the armed forces. That is carte blanche authority over the armed forces. And Congress has used that repeatedly for 200 years. And so if you go back and look at early wars, Congress is micromanaging them in all sorts of ways that would seem odd to mod modern readers of the Constitution because they just expect that the commander in chief has to have some constitutionally sanctioned autonomy. If it if the you know the, the office was meant to come with that authority, the founding generation seemed totally oblivious to it. There's there's just all sorts of statutes um, that regulate which enemy um, uh, assets can be attacked, where U.S. ships will patrol, where uh, U.S. troops will be stationed, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, many thanks for that. Uh, Deborah. what have the courts said about the different visions of executive power offered by John Yu and Sai Prakash? We have a bunch of relevant recent precedents, including the Hamdan case, which said that Bush-era military commissions were unconstitutional, uh, the Hamdi case, which said the president can't hold an American citizen indefinitely without trial. The, the Rasul case, uh, courts have jurisdiction to consider legal appeals on Guantanamo. But if, if uh, Professor Yu says that Congress can't 
control military action contrary to the president's desire, and uh, Professor Prakash Sai says that uh, Congress can, uh, which way would the Supreme Court come down? Well, Professor Prakash is right. <laughs> um, uh, and so he's not only right in my judgment. I think that the court has demonstrated itself um, far more inclined to that view than to the John Yoo view. Um, and to put that in a little bit of context, the notion that the president should have this sweeping power, notwithstanding all the power that has been granted to Congress, right? that notion can't come from the text of the Constitution, because as we've discussed, right, it gives the president these you know, two or three little powers, and it doesn't talk about presidential power in this area very much, whereas Congress has this enormous list of powers in this context. Um, it certainly doesn't come from historical perspectives or historical understandings of what those powers meant for reasons that Sai has um, explained. Um, and indeed, uh, there is little evidence in the history of U.S. practice through the present day with respect to congressional powers, but at a minimum through President Truman with respect to presidential powers, um, that anybody had any sense that the president would have that degree of power and Congress would not. Where that argument really comes from is a set of what I would call sort of functional justifications about the way the Constitution should work and the allocation of constitutional power should work. And that argument says two things. Number one, the president is accountable to the public. And when it comes to matters of war and peace, the president, the elected, democratically elected president, should have the power to make these decisions, certainly should have that power more so than any unelected judicial authority should have the power to say, no, you have exceeded your constitutional or, for that matter, statutory authority in this matter, uh, because the president is politically accountable to the electorate and the courts are not. Uh, so that's sort of functional argument number one. Functional argument number two is the president should be understood to have this power because the president needs to have this power, right? We no longer live in the 18th century, uh, and even if we did, there were then and certainly still are now circumstances in which presidents need to be able to act with unity, secrecy, and dispatch. Presidents need to be able to sometimes take action in the realm of national security that they don't first pass in full view of the public by two different houses of Congress uh, in, in, in the full course of its deliberations. Um, and for these reasons, right, the president's advantages in political accountability and his functional expertise and efficiency in pursuing national security better than Congress, right, fast, better and faster than Congress, um, for these reasons, it's important to, notwithstanding what the Constitution says or the framers thought they meant, recognize that the president has this kind of power now. Um, and I've written previously and boy, in the context of the current situation with the current president and the current crisis in North Korea, I think these, these, um, the, the sort of fragility of those arguments become especially apparent. Um, those arguments aren't very persuasive in the vast majority of cases. So um, let me start with, for example, the accountability right, claim. Now, it might be the case, or one could except the argument that, sure, the president is elected and courts are not, and therefore the president has a greater claim to political accountability than the courts, and I think that's fair enough. But the president has no greater claim to political accountability than, say, Congress. So if that's the question, right, if we're really arguing that Congress can't do this, it, it seems to me the political accountability argument itself um, holds, holds little or no water. Um, more important, I think, in most of these circumstances, though, and, and notwithstanding John Yu's arguments, um, is this notion that the president needs to be able to do this without Congress because sometimes the president needs to be able to act quickly and sometimes even secretly. Um, and that is 
sometimes the case, certainly, um, and especially when it comes to circumstances of self-defense or even anticipatory self-defense when the president sees that an attack on the United States or U.S. interests or U.S. people, U.S. persons, as they say, is imminent. Um, but that particular circumstance, that is the circumstance in which the president's functional advantage is most important, is a circumstance that everybody agrees the president already has the power to act, right? Surely the president can act in self-defense without going to Congress. So what other circumstances is it that those functional advantages become so uh, persuasive uh, that beyond self-defense concerns, the president needs that power as well? And there I think the argument becomes much less clear. Uh, thanks so much for that. Um, uh, Sai, uh, one more beat on the original understanding, because Professor Yu and, and many uh, uh, people in Congress do care about the original understanding of the Constitution. The, an, an early draft of the Constitution, uh, now displayed at the National Constitution Center and available online at constitutioncenter.org forward slash treasures, gives Congress the power to make rather than declare war. And that earlier language arguably would have given Congress a greater role in day-to-day -day decisions during wartime. But even though the language was restricted to declare, still uh, people as distinguished as the young congressman Abraham Lincoln argued that President Polk had no power to send troops over the Mexican border unless Mexico invaded first and introduced the famous spot resolutions demanding that Mexico, uh, that Polk identify the spot where Mexico crossed the border. So, so tell us what more about why you believe that the original understanding of the Constitution supports your conclusion that Congress could limit the president's ability to deploy troops. Sure. Well, this change from make to declare um, is often cited by those who think that um, this change meant that the president could wage war without having to go to Congress because that power is no longer given to Congress. And I, I think that's certainly a possible way of understanding what happened. I, I just don't think that anyone so understood it because after the Constitution went to the states, many people upon reading it said that Congress has the power to make war by virtue of the constitutional text which mentions declare war. More importantly, when people describe the, the Constitution's allocation of war powers, no one said that the president could start a war. The only people who spoke to it always said that Congress had that authority. And we're talking about people like Jefferson, Madison, George Washington, James Wilson, uh, Alexander Hamilton, the, the, the apostle of executive power. Each of these folks said that the, 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 the president couldn't take us to war, only Congress could do that. And they said this prior to ratification, and they said this during the administration of George Washington. And then, of course, when you look at what actually transpired in the early years, every time the nation went to war, Congress declared war. No president ever thought that because another nation had declared war in the United States, that the United States, that the president could unilaterally decide to wage war in response. That was something left to Congress over and over again. So there is this change from uh, uh, make to declare, but um, I don't believe it has the consequences that some would see in it. Uh, thanks so much. Deborah, last word on original understanding and whether you think it would matter to the courts and to Congress. Whether uh, original understanding would matter to courts in the Congress? Yes, and, I, uh, and, I, and, I, and as well, a beat about practice, because I, I mentioned the, the, the Polk and Mexico and Lincoln challenging his ability to send troops over the border, and President Taft refused to send troops over the border to Mexico because he thought he had no authority to do so under the Constitution. So tell us about how presidents before uh, Roosevelt and Truman construed their, their war-making authority. Before, the, the reason why people point to uh, Truman as sort of affecting this watershed uh, or, or affecting this watershed change in um, the exercise of presidential power is because before Truman, it was exceedingly rare um, for presidents to use force without congressional authorization, except in this really very narrow um, set of circumstances that amount to um, protecting Americans and American property, right? In other words, in circumstances that look very much like self-defense um, of American nationals and American property, whether here or more commonly um, in historical practice overseas. Um, 
So it is not the case that presidents never used force without congressional authorization, but it was just the case that those uses of force were far closer to within the historical understanding, not only um, the original understanding that the framers had of the limited nature of presidential power, right? The framers were clear, and indeed the Supreme Court was clear, um, uh, has been clear historically in the Civil War and otherwise, that the president's power includes the power to, uh, in the language often used, repel sudden attacks, right? Uh, so that's why there is so much um, consensus around that particular point. And there is plenty of presidential practice to sustain that argument, which what's much less clear um, in presidential practice is any evidence that it was used for, that, that unilateral presidential force was used for purposes other than self-defense or the protection of U.S. persons or property uh, really before Truman. And beginning with Truman and since, presidents have come up with this much wider range of justifications, at least for certain limited periods of time, and sometimes for not so limited periods of time, um, to use force for reasons that have much more to do with the United States post-World War II purpose and role in the world than it has to do with traditional sovereign interests in protecting the state and protecting the state's own nationals. Thanks so much for that. Well, let's turn to Afghanistan, uh, Sai. Uh, what uh, are the president's power to ramp up troops in Afghanistan? Why are some arguing that we need a new authorization for use of military force in Afghanistan? What are these authorizations for use of military force? Are they extension of Congress's declare war powers? And, and how can Congress constrain the president in Afghanistan? Well, the the, the in 2001, after the 9-11 attacks, Congress authorized the president to use necessary and appropriate force against those who perpetrated those attacks and those who harbored them. And that's the source of authority that, um, or the statutory source of authority that the Bush and Obama administrations relied upon to wage war in Afghanistan. And that statute is still out there. There's no sunset on it. It's like Social Security, right? They, it was passed once and there was no sunset on it. We, we continue to have it. And so um, there's really no, in my mind, no constitutional question about um, increasing the number of troops in Afghanistan because he has, quote, the authority to use necessary and appropriate force. And that includes uh, the authority to increase the, the number of troops. I think people who want to have a debate on the continued use of force uh, presumably want to have that debate in part because they don't like the fact that we're continuing to fight in Afghanistan some 16 um, uh, years after uh, the AUMF. Um, so it's really, I think, a policy difference, uh, not a legal question that motivates um, unease with what uh, uh, President Trump might do in Afghanistan. Deborah, any uh, limits on what uh, the president can do in Afghanistan under the existing authorization for use of military force? And do these authorizations have any expiration dates? There's obviously a vigorous debate about whether the post-9-11 authorization for use of force against al-Qaeda applies to ISIS. And some have suggested that Congress's authorizations in the wake of the Korean War might actually authorize the president to act in North Korea today. So is there an expiration date for these authorizations? Right. So with respect to the president's decision or desire to increase troop levels in Afghanistan, I quite agree. There's no constitutional question there, and the president has all the authority he needs to send additional troops to Afghanistan under the 2001 authorization for the use of military force that Sai mentions, um, which itself right, says nothing by its terms about expiration dates or anything else. Now, that statute or any other statute that Congress passed certainly could contain such an expiration date, um, but in this particular case, Congress didn't uh, offer one and there's been no amendment to apply one. The reason, though, I should say there's been so much question and so much debate about whether we need a new authorization for the use of military force, um, or for use of military force, has been not so much to do with uh, the ongoing war in, Af in Afghanistan per se. Um, that is to say, there are plenty of people who certainly think we should no longer be there and others who think we should send even more troops. But most of the debate uh, in Congress, in and around Congress, about the need for a new AUMF, as, as, as it's called, um, is to do with two other 
problems with the interpretation of that particular statute. One is that that statute authorized the president to use um, all necessary and appropriate force against those nations, persons, and organizations that attacked us on 9-11-2001. And everybody understood at the time and still agrees that that, at a minimum, included the organization al-Qaeda that was operating in Afghanistan and the Taliban uh, that was then the government and now the insurgents, one of the insurgency force operating in Afghanistan. Um, so there's no question that that was at the core of the statute. The controversial uh, uses of the statute have been to apply it not just to al-Qaeda, but to associated forces of al-Qaeda and even groups that aren't associated with al-Qaeda, like ISIL, uh, who were currently fighting in Syria, um, which is by its own statements and by al-Qaeda's own statements, the sworn and active enemy of al-Qaeda, right? So we've extended this authorization to apply to different groups. And secondly, we've extended it to apply well beyond the territory of Afghanistan itself, which was what we invaded after 2001, and even the Afghanistan-Pakistan border, where a lot of these um, al-Qaeda and, and Taliban fighters flee, to carry out military force operations and bombing campaigns and drone campaigns in at least a half a dozen, I think the number of countries in which we've now used force under the AOMF is approaching nine. Um, so not only Afghanistan, Pakistan, but also Somalia and uh, Libya, where to the extent we've attacked al-Qaeda forces there, and Syria, of course, and other countries as well, Yemen and, and more. Um, so the controversy is more to do with against whom are we using force, right, groups that didn't exist in 2001, and where are we authorized to use this force? And as both administrations, uh, or at least the Bush and Obama administrations have now interpreted it, and the Trump administration, pretty much in any country in which, um, in which we conclude that the groups we think uh, uh, are covered by the statute operate. And, and that's why there's been so much current debate about the AUMF. Great. Uh, well, well, Sai, um this has been a rich and wonderful debate, uh, but is it an academic debate in the best sense? Namely, things have speeded up so fast from Twitter to nukes that if the president were to do what we imagined in the beginning and say, remove the weapons or we'll nuke you, and he nuked you, even though you both think that Congress you know, could act to stop him if they wanted, probably we'd all be blown up before there was time. So in, in practice, uh, what would a return to Congress having full control over war-making look like, and is it possible, given the speed of war, to return to a pre-Truman world? Well, I mean, I, I think it's always been possible for presidents to start wars. Um, it's, it's certainly easier now that we, you know, the borders don't matter as much, right? It's, it's much easier to target other countries because the, the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans aren't such huge obstacles in the age of missiles and, and you know, in the age of stationing troops all around the world. So uh, there's always been this possibility of, of presidents starting wars. And, you know, there was there were claims that uh, Monroe started a war against Spain in Florida through the actions of, of General Jackson. So this has always been a, a possibility. It's just more of a possibility now. I, I do think you're right that there's, there's an academic quality to this debate because um, the president has military tools at his disposal provided by Congress that enable him to do things today that couldn't have been done 200 years ago. Um, and, and you're right that the president, if he wanted to, could start a nuclear war and there would be, you know, it would be sort of a moot point to, to discuss what would happen to him uh, afterwards because we would all be more concerned about the, the fallout, the literal fallout of that war more than we would about the constitutional authority. But uh, these sorts of debates do influence um, policymakers and they, they do influence um, members of Congress and perhaps people in the administration. And so it's important to have it, even if we think that uh, should the president ignore um, these concerns, uh, it all becomes moot at that point. Deborah, same question to you, but I also I just have a practical question. What happens when the president orders the nuclear codes? Are there six minutes, you know, where they get launched without anyone being able to stop them? Or, you know, what if uh, two generals decide that the nukes have to stop. Just give us that scenario and then answer the broader question of whether it's unrealistic to expect a, a return to a pre-Truman world given the speed of modern warfare. Right, right. So um, 
it's you know it's difficult to talk about because nobody wants to think about the practical reality of nuclear war, but it's a practical reality we've been living with for um, well over half a century. Um, so the way the national command structure works is that the president can issue an order um, and and the chain of command goes from the president to the secretary of defense to our military command authority um, and at each step of that chain, depending on where the initial command comes from, right? Individuals in the chain of command are, in practical terms, able to not follow the order. Now, there are enormous consequences that flow to those individuals and others for not following the order. And the farther down the chain of command, the chain of command you go, the less likely it becomes that any order wouldn't be followed because our military is quite rightly trained that ours is a government of civilian control and their entire mission and purpose is to carry out the wishes even if they are unfortunate or wrong or stupid, right, to carry out the orders of the civilian command authority. Now, there's one enormous exception to that, and that is if the order is unlawful. Um, but there are plenty of circumstances one could imagine, including circumstances involving, in extreme cases, the use of nuclear weapons, again, in circumstances of self-defense or with congressional authorization, where the use of force would be lawful, right? So unless it's clearly unlawful, um, uh, we have devoted an enormous amount of time and money and effort and acculturation uh, to making sure that the military carries out civilian orders. The, the notion is civilians have the right to be wrong, and that's at the core of uh, civilian control over the military. So uh, it is possible. Um, some cases, again, if the order is unlawful, it is required. Um, but it's, there's certainly lots of reasons to expect and many reasons to hope that civilian orders would be followed. So that's just in practical, in roughly speaking, practical terms. The question about whether this matters, whether this whole debate matters, um, about how much president, how much power the president has under law, under constitutional law, under statutory law, uh, I think the answer is unavoidably yes, it matters, um, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one are sort of the reasons that um, Sai alluded to, namely. The question was whether the president actually has the authority to do this under our Constitution or a statute matters enormously to most members of Congress and certainly other influential decision makers. And in most circumstances, nearly all circumstances short of actual nuclear war, right, which is something that we haven't faced uh, as a society, um, there is there are a series of stopping points. Sure, the president can carry out an initial bombing run or an initial even bombing campaign before Congress could act. But again, short of nuclear war, Congress has and is likely to have a lot of opportunities to step in and act um, to prevent the president from carrying out any sustained campaign. And that matters even in circumstances like the one we're facing in North Korea, where notwithstanding what the president says, and only, of course, he knows what he really means by that, um, you know, it is quite possible and indeed likely that the United States initial, any initial U.S. strike against North Korea could be a conventional strike, right? If we want to degrade North Korea's nuclear capability, we could do a fair bit of damage with a conventional attack. Now, that conventional attack is likely to trigger an enormous war on the Korean Peninsula and beyond, and those consequences are horrifying to consider as well. Um, but it's not at all certain that the first strike in a North Korea, um, a North Korean war is going to be a nuclear strike, and indeed much more likely, I think, that it is not. The second reason I think it matters is because it matters to most presidents. Um, one can see in this now very rich um, set of materials we've gained over the last you know, 15 and, and more, 50 years from presidents, not only in OLC memoranda, but historical materials and leaked discussions uh, inside the executive branch. Um, presidents think about and debate, and certainly presidents' staffs 
and uh, military leadership think about and debate the legality of what they're about to undertake, the legality of what they're about to undertake both as a matter of constitutional law and as a matter of international law. And those legal constraints in that respect um, at least carry some weight, more with some presidents than with others, but at least some weight with all presidents, uh, as we've been able to see sort of in empirical stories we can tell and empirical stories we can observe about how presidents make decisions. Now, whether those legal constraints will end up proving dispositive for any one president in any one circumstance, I'm not sure anybody can tell. But the record of presidential practice post-Truman has been of some presidents sometimes using force without congressional authorization, and some presidents sometimes seeking congressional authorization for the use of force. It has not been, oh, now that presidents can do it, they always do it without Congress. Presidents sometimes go to Congress uh, even though they may think they have the authority to do it without Congress. So uh, I, think it's, I think it's a much closer question, and law matters much more on the ground in presidential decision-making than we might expect. Thanks very much for that. Well, it is time for closing arguments, and I'm going to ask the obvious one to just sum up in a few sentences, uh, Sai. How does the Constitution limit the president's ability to launch unilateral attacks, and why should our listeners care about that? Well, I think, once again, it really depends on what we mean by the Constitution. If we're talking about the original Constitution, the founders did not want to give one person the authority to wage war. Uh, they granted that authority to Congress. It actually had been in Congress's hand prior to the Constitution, and it stayed there. Um, and that was the regime that we had for about 150 years until the Korean War, at which point in time President Truman took us into Korea, calling it a police action, never going to Congress beforehand. And since then, presidents have, as Deborah pointed out, occasionally started wars without getting congressional authorization. And sometimes presidents and their legal advisors have said, oh, it's got to be a limited war. Other times presidents have uh, have claimed, I think, almost carte blanche authority to, to wage war. The first Bush, President George H.W. Bush, before the first Gulf War, claimed that he could go um, kick out Saddam Hussein from Kuwait without getting any congressional authority. He eventually got it. But I think he went to Congress knowing that he would get it. If, if he didn't think he was going to get it from Congress, he was going to kick Saddam out of Kuwait without going to Congress. Basically, going to Congress at that point was a, was a form of insurance. It was a form of spreading the blame. And so if you've got the original understanding the president doesn't have this authority, if you've got the more modern understanding, you're more apt to think that the president at least has some authority to wage war and, and perhaps unlimited authority to wage war, as, as some presidents have claimed. Many thanks for that. Deborah, last word to you. What are the constitutional limits on the president's ability unilaterally to wage war, and why should our listeners care? <laughs> so the, there are several constitutional limits on the president's power to wage war. The first comes from the constitutional principles that we've been talking about by the text and by the original purpose of the framers and so forth. Uh, the notion was that, for the most part, Congress was going to make decisions about waging war, and unless there was some imminent concern, uh, an attack or an imminent attack on the United States, the president, for the most part, wasn't going to uh, wasn't going to carry out the use of force. That understanding has obviously been broadened uh, by by modern presidents, uh, but even modern presidents have recognized that. They can't launch full-out war, right? Commitment of vast ground troops, unlimited time commitment, and so forth, uh, without going to Congress. Um, but that brings us to the other checks, right? We don't just have to count on presidents to uh, control their own use of authority, although some presidents sometimes do. Um, we have several other options. Number one, Congress has passed this War Powers Act, so there's now a statutory check on president the president's commitments of uh, uh, troops abroad. That statutory check has proved only occasionally functional, but it's proved remarkably effective in at least persuading presidents to report to Congress when it is that we are carrying out, for example, bombing campaigns overseas, so that at least we avoid the problem of 
for example, secret wars in Cambodia or elsewhere. But beyond those sort of formal legal checks, what the Constitution says, what the War Powers Resolution says, there are enormous sort of domestic practical checks on presidential power. Because the president is accountable to the people and accountable to Congress, um, presidents don't like to wage and continue unpopular wars, right? It ultimately hurts their approval ratings. It hurts the approval ratings of their parties in Congress. And because we're a democracy, it is possible for the people and for Congress uh, to take action against presidents who are engaging in a military force they don't like. Uh, and finally, and especially in the last 15 years, we've seen, I think, the courts increasingly willing uh, to engage presidents on questions of how much authority uh, is included with the use of what is often called the war power. So, sure, you can bomb another country, but could you really detain people indefinitely that we picked up in that country? Could you really interrogate them and torture them? Uh, could you really uh, commit them to trial under military tribunal as opposed to in the Article Three criminal courts? And in all of these questions, the courts have said, no, we're not just going to assume that all of these are sort of lesser included powers in the presidential war power, um, whatever the scope of that power is. We're going to enforce statutory, constitutional, uh, and indeed even international law limits on the exercise of those powers. And while it's still the case that the courts haven't yet weighed in on uh, whether or not the president is exceeding the scope of his authority to use force under, for example, the AOMF in the broadest sense, in the targeting sense, in the, in the blowing things up sense, uh, I think it's not out of the question that if this particular war uh, continues, we'll see the courts start to change their tune on even that most core question in, in the coming years. Thank you so much, Deborah Perlstein and Cyprakash, for a nuanced, deep, and illuminating discussion of the constitutional limits on the president's power to launch unilateral attacks. Cy, Deborah, thank you so much for joining. Thank, thank you. you. Today's show was engineered by Kevin Kilborn and produced by Ugana Etze and Scott Bomboy. Research was provided by Ugana Etze and Lana Ulrich. Continue today's conversation on Facebook and Twitter using at ConstitutionCTR. Sign up to receive Constitution Weekly, our email roundup of constitutional news and debate at bit.ly forward slash Constitution Weekly. Please subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast live at America's Town Hall on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And please, ladies and gentlemen, make sure to go to the Apple Store and give us a rating that will delight constitution lovers around the world. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out the full roster of podcasts at panoply.fm. And finally, despite our inspiring congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support. We rely on the generosity of inspired listeners like you who love our constitutional mission. And even if you don't want to support us or are not able to support us financially, I want you to become members of the Constitution Center to signal your commitment to this community of lifelong learners who believe it is important to hear the best arguments on all sides of constitutional issues and make up their own minds. So go to the website, even if it's just for a dollar or for a token, become a member of the National Constitution Center, signal your passion for constitutional education, and join the Constitution Center family. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.